as I mentioned to you in the last conference, the matter of seeking God's will is to seek the order that God willed in the world and to bring our own souls back into order with his, to follow the order that he established. Now, here on earth, we talk about something being out of order. We say something is, being, is out of order when it's not working, when it's not working at all, or when it's not working, working properly. We also speak of things being out of order when they're in the wrong place. We also speak of persons being out of order. When we say to someone, you're out of order, we're saying they're acting not rightly. On the other hand, you see in the church, very often the word order is used. The word order applies to many things in the church in the course of her history. She has given rise to religious orders. And in fact, our Lord established a sacrament of holy orders, as we know it. And you might say that that is very aptly named because the ordination of priests took place at the Last Supper when our Lord ordered the apostles. He gave them their orders. You do this in commemoration of me, to consecrate his own body and blood and to carry on, as it were, the sacrifice that he would make. He entrusted it to their care and he gave them the order, do this, hoc facite in meam, meam commemorationem. Do this in commemoration of me. And so, even to this day, when we offer Mass, we're actually obeying an order from our Lord Jesus Christ, an explicit order that he gave his apostles at the Last Supper when he ordained them to the priesthood and gave them the power to fulfill the order. He gave them both the command, the responsibility, that is, and the authority, the power, in order that's to carry out the command to do what our Lord had done at the Last Supper and to continue that holy sacrifice of the Mass. So, you see, it really is a matter of carrying out orders. It's a matter of following orders, or following the orders of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even the, the order of worship that we use in the Mass, we have an ordo. We call an ordo published every year, which tells you exactly how the divine office that the priest prays every day and the holy sacrifice of the Mass must be ordered, must be offered every day. It tells you exactly what prayers are to be followed, what prayers to be used, and so on. So even that idea of ordo. In fact, when Paul VI came out with a new order, as he called it, the Novus Ordo, he wasn't just implementing a new rite. You know, there, there are different, the church has different rites of mass, you know that. There are about four dozen different traditional rites of mass in the various ancient languages. We have St. John Chrysostom and the mass of St. John Chrysostom, which pretty much has formed the pattern for the Eastern rites. Going back into the earliest centuries of the church, we have the Latin rite, so the Roman rite, which is one of the Latin rites. 
And uh, there are a multiplicity of different rites in the church, all of them actually saying the same thing, professing the same faith, and worshiping God in exactly the same way by the consecration of the body and blood of Christ and the perpetuation of that sacrifice on the altar that began on the cross. But Paul VI didn't just establish a new rite. He was, as he himself said, establishing an entirely new order. That is something that goes much, much deeper. It's as though he was not only uh, giving us another rite at Mass, he was reinventing the Mass itself. It was so profound, the change that he had made. In fact, the Ottaviani intervention authored, well, actually approved and endorsed by Cardinal Ottaviani and Cardinal Bacci, and signed by 40 of the leading theologians teaching in the theological faculties in Rome. Uh, that Ottaviani intervention, so-called, explains very clearly that what we're dealing with is not a new rite of Mass in Paul VI, we're dealing with a new order of Mass, something much more profound. So the, the word ordo, ordinis, in the Church has a very long use and a very significant meaning. It really is a matter of orders. Remember on um, Wednesday night, I talked about the idea of the military and the fact that we are on the front lines here, that our um, military personnel are around the world, but the front lines actually are here in what we're fighting for, for our country, for the souls of our children, for the souls of our wives, for the souls of our loved ones all, we are fighting a battle here for our country also, which is much more ferocious because here we're fighting the battle not against human enemies, but against the powers of darkness, the principalities and powers, uh, fallen angels. We are fighting that battle now, here. And so each one of us must consider himself to be a soldier on the front lines, day by day, hour by hour. We are fighting that battle moment by moment, right here, now, day by day in our lives. We have to see ourselves that way, members of the church militant, and we are fighting the most important battle right here. If we don't fight this battle and win this battle, then our soldiers will have nothing to fight for. So we have to fight this battle here. Now, the question came, how do we restore in our own souls this order that God placed in creation and which we, in which we destroyed, this order we destroyed? We can't say we destroyed entirely the order because we don't have the power to destroy our human nature. Martin Luther made the great error in thinking that sin could so radically destroy human nature that it was irredeemable. And so all we can do is have faith and that alone can save us. But our Lord did say, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So yes, we do have to make reparation. Even though Christ made reparation for all sin on the cross, we must unite our paltry acts even mere symbols of reparation, but we must unite them with his. There must be something that we offer in union with Christ. 
And one of the most important things that we can offer in union with Christ is to partake of the sacrifice that he offered for us. And uh, we'll get to that on this octave day of the Feast of Corpus Christi. That is a very important point that has to be made and will be made during this conference. Yeah. But we have to bring something to our Lord. We have to bring something to Calvary. We have to bring something to the cross. And we have to bring something to the altar also. Now, we know that one of the most important things we have to do to restore the order that, that God intended, that has been destroyed by sin, but not irrevocably, as it was in the angels, so that restoration, repentance, recovery are possible for us, one of the most important things we have to do is prayer. And prayer is not just a momentary act. It is an entire, an entire way of life. It is entire attitude. It's something we carry with us every moment of the day. Our Lord said, pray always. And so, in that sense, prayer can't be simply a matter of stopping everything to say a prayer. And prayer, the spirit of prayer should imbue everything we do. Why? Well, because, as you know very well, prayer involves four things. That is to say, four purposes. And those four purposes can be active in everything we do. The four purposes of prayer, as also with the four purposes of sacrifice, are adoration, reparation, thanksgiving, and supplication. You've heard this many times before, I know. But in fact, it is this that we must do. Not only when we say our prayers, but when we do anything, carry out any of the duties of our state in life, we have to have the same four purposes at work. You can have in your prayers the purposes of adoration, reparation, thanksgiving, and supplication, but you can also have active in whatever you do throughout the day, these same purposes animating you, guiding you, inspiring you, as the purpose for which you do what you do, the purpose for which you say what you say. And then they will affect, these four purposes will necessarily affect not only what you do materially, but they will affect how you do these, how you carry out your responsibilities. Not just what you say, but how you say it. Not just what you do, but how you do it. Will be animated by the purposes of prayer. Adoration, reparation, thanksgiving, and supplication. Now, it's easy to see why these four things have to be at the root of prayer, but should be at the root of everything we do, who have a faith and hope and love for our Lord. Well, first of all, adoration. By adoration, we recognize, we acknowledge the sovereignty of God. This is exactly what we didn't do when we sinned. And that was the problem. So we have to start with adoration. We have to start with acknowledging God's sovereignty and his absolute rightful dominion over us in all that we do, all that we say, all that we think. In other words, what we have to do is recognize, again, the order of things 
And this is acknowledging the correct order of things, and that is beginning with God's rightful sovereignty over us. But remember, our Lord tied that question of acknowledging the sovereignty of God. Even he, the Son of God, made man, spoke of his own obedience to the Father. And uh, he spoke of it in terms of love. So in other words, this acknowledgement of God's sovereignty is not just some intellectual exercise as though we're doing some kind of math problem. It is an, an exercise in the most fundamental reality of existence, and that is that God exists of himself and I don't. And everything I have, I have because I have received it. Even my existence itself has come to me because God has willed me into being. So you see, this acknowledgement of God's sovereignty is an operative thing, and it is a matter of love. That acknowledgement of God's sovereignty imposes upon me a certain obedience, but again, our Lord has tied obedience absolutely to love. Again, I, I draw your attention to these statements of sacred scripture, and these are just a small sampling. In the book of Exodus, already, Book of Exodus, when God is giving the Ten Commandments, what do we read there? The sacred scripture tells us that God shows mercy unto thousands to them that love me and keep my commandments. So there you have an explicit connection. As God himself says, that he shows mercy unto thousands who love him and who keep his commandments. And in the book of Deuteronomy, again, this is a book of Moses now, the fifth book of Moses. And showing mercy unto many thousands to them that love me and keep my commandments. The statement is, is repeated again. And in the Old Testament, again, book of Deuteronomy. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee, but that thou fear the Lord thy God and walk in his ways and love him and serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. So here again, you have... Love tied together with a service of the will of God. Deuteronomy again. Therefore, love the Lord thy God and observe his precepts and ceremonies, his judgments and commandments. Love tied to obedience. They necessarily go hand in hand. True obedience has to be motivated, therefore, by love. Deuteronomy again. If then you obey my commandments, which I command you this day, that you love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy again, for if you keep the commandments which I command you and do them to love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways, cleaving unto him. Deuteronomy again, thou shalt not hear the words of that prophet or dreamer, for the Lord your God trieth you that it may appear whether you love him, that it may appear whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul or not. Again, it is a matter of obedience. By the way, the use of the word trieth, the Lord your God trieth you. It's very interesting there, in light of the fact of what Francis has just done to the Our Father, saying that God doesn't try anyone. God does try. He does try those he loves. He does put them to the test. And he gives them the grace to measure up to it and to succeed and to advance in the spiritual life. But you may say, well, if God tries for the sake of moving those forward, 
I mentioned the cases of our Blessed Mother and St. Joseph who were left to take an entire day of their lives traveling back to Nazareth when our Lord stayed behind in Jerusalem. This was definitely to try them. It did try them. And yet our Lord gave them grace to advance even beyond the holiness they had by submission to this trial. They gained grace. God gave them. God gave them the grace to react as they did. I mentioned that. I mentioned when our Lord asked the apostles how he would feed the thousands in the desert. And the gospel itself says he, he sent this to try them, to see what they would come up with, what they would answer, how they would answer. But again, our Lord was giving them the grace. You know, The Canaanite woman crying, pleading for the life of her daughter, and insulted by our Lord as though she were a mere dog. But she was given the grace by God to answer that challenge. So we might say, well, why would we pray in the Our Father then? I mean, we might see, okay, well, Francis is wrong in saying that God does not try the souls of those who love him, because clearly God does try them, put them to the test. But if this is an opportunity to gain in grace and to move forward, and God tries us for the sake of advancing us in the spiritual life, then why would we pray that he not lead us into temptation if at the same time we know he's going to give us great graces to advance in the spiritual life because of the trial? Why would we pray not to have the trial? Because perhaps our Lord is teaching us in the Our Father to pray for the grace to advance without the need for a trial, without the need to be tried that we simply ask God, give us the grace to love him that much more. Do not see the need to try us, O Lord. Simply give us the grace and we will embrace it and accept it. Perhaps that is the meaning of it. But there's no doubt that the words of the Our Father are absolutely true, as you would expect them to be. They come from the mouth of our Lord himself. When our Lord teaches us to pray that we not be led into temptation or trial. Our Lord is teaching us to pray for the grace that the very trial itself would warrant, would require. But to continue the point here, that obedience to the commandments and love of God go hand in hand, they're inseparable. Again, Deuteronomy, you see, Deuteronomy means the two laws and or the second law, you might say, and you would expect to see statements in Deuteronomy about obeying the law of God, and that's exactly what you see. But time and time again, it is tied to love. Deuteronomy again, if thou keep his commandments and do the things which I command thee this day, that thou love the Lord thy God, Deuteronomy again, the Lord thy God will circumcise thy heart and the heart of thy seed, that then mayest, then thou mayest love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. And again, finally, perhaps, Deuteronomy, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God and walk in his ways and keep his commandments. Well, that's 
the last citation I'll give you from Deuteronomy. But we go to the book of Joshua, the great judge of Israel. Yet so that you observed attentively and in work, fulfill the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, that you love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways and keep all his commandments. And again, the book of Joshua, this only take care of with all diligence that you love the Lord your God. So we see very clearly here in the Old Testament the, the tying together of love and obedience to the law of God, that the love of God is shown by obedience to his commandments. Did our Lord change that? When he came with his new law, did our Lord somehow revise that? Well, you look at the New Testament. You see what our Lord himself says there about this very matter. St. John chapter 14, if you love me, if you love me, keep my commandments. And our Lord in John 14, a little bit later, if anyone love me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. Later on in that same chapter, St. John, chapter 14, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father hath given me commandment, so do I. Again, love and obedience. Absolutely inseparable. And again, in John 14, remember now, we're looking at the discourse of our Lord to his apostles at the Last Supper. When our Lord is preparing for them, preparing them for what's to come, the cross, death, burial, a tragedy for which nothing could prepare them. But our Lord told them what he told them so they could reflect later and understand. Time and time again, he makes the same connection to them. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved by my Father. The Father and I will love him, and we will manifest, I will manifest myself to him. You notice, after our Lord's resurrection, when he was walking with Peter along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, our Lord asked Peter three times, Peter, lovest thou me? And we know from what the fathers have told us that this was our Lord's way of giving Peter the opportunity to amend for his three denials. You know that the night our Lord was betrayed, Peter was so intimidated, even by a servant girl, this man given to so much bravado, this man who drew his little sword in the Garden of Gethsemane and sliced off the ear of the servant of the high priest, which our Lord promptly restored to him, that this very man who would defend our Lord unto death, as he declared, before they entered the Garden of Gethsemane, this very man denied knowing our Lord, even cursing and swearing that he never knew him. And so our Lord asked of him simply this, our Lord asked him three times, Peter, lovest thou me? But Peter answered, yes, Lord, I do love thee. Notice the first time our Lord asked St. Peter that question, he asked it in such a way 
that, well, reflected Peter's way of thinking. Peter, lovest thou me more than these, more than the rest of them? St. John was the other apostle standing nearby. He was with him. And uh, so our Lord asked him, do you love me even more than this, John? And Peter would not say, Lord, I love thee more than the rest. Now, this is the way he was before, but now humility had begun to seep into the soul of Peter. So now he would profess his love for our Lord and say, Lord, thou knowest, Lord, I love thee. Yes, Lord, I love thee. But he would not dare compare his love to John. John stood under the cross. Peter was off weeping miserably in the darkness. John exposed himself to danger, you might see, for our Lord, and Peter was hiding off, quote, safely in the darkness, but horrified at what he'd done. Peter was in no position to compare his love for our Lord to that of St. John, certainly. And so he wouldn't answer that question, but he did answer this, yes, Lord, I love thee. And our Lord asked him again, Peter, lovest thou me? And again, lovest thou me? And Peter answered, but each time our Lord gave him something to do. And by this, again, our Lord is telling us that love requires action. Love gives responsibility. Love requires obedience. And our Lord, therefore, said to Peter, and to each protestation of love that Peter made, then you do this. Do this for me. Do this for me. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. So he asked Peter first, do you love me? And as a consequence of Peter's agreement that, yes, Lord, I do love thee, then you do this for me. Do me this service. Again, it all comes down to that, isn't it? It comes down to obedience and love necessarily go hand in hand. Obeying the commandments of our Lord is a sign of love for him. And there can be no genuine love for our Lord where there is no no striving to be obedient to his commandments. We have to be firmly convinced of that because it is the first thing that our Lord gives us as an indication of whether our love for him is genuine. It is like the, the supreme or the acid test to determine whether we really do love him. And that is a matter of adoration by obedience, recognizing his sovereignty and his authority and that we are subject to him, and we owe him out of love that obedience. So that's the first object of prayer, then, to make that explicit, thoughtful, deliberate act of submission to the will of God, which is born of love for him, what we call adoration. Now, of course, the second purpose of prayer, to reorder our souls, according to God's will, is reparation. And what that is, it begins with contrition. Some say adoration, contrition, thanksgiving, and supplication, because reparation obviously has to begin with a kind of repentance, so it has to begin with contrition. So contrition and reparation are both included there together. Some prefer contrition because it can be A-C-T-S, acts. Some prefer 
adoration, reparation, thanksgiving, and supplication because they prefer to use the acronym ARTS. But in any case, the fact is that contrition and reparation go together, as you know. And what is that? Contrition is simply a recognition of the times we did not, we did not honor God's sovereignty. Adoration is a matter of honoring the sovereignty of God. And sin is a matter of dishonoring that sovereignty and rejecting it. So contrition is a counterpart of adoration. In acknowledging the sovereignty of God and paying honor to it, we repent of the times we did not honor the sovereignty of God. That's the next step and a necessary step for us. And then, of course, by Thanksgiving, we acknowledge God as the source of all of our good, and we are grateful for that. And by supplication, again, we approach God as the source of all good, and we ask him for his blessings. So all of these things really reorder in the soul exactly the way it should be and put the soul in the frame of mind that it should have to reorder the soul. Now, it doesn't make the passions go away. It doesn't make the weaknesses go away. But what it is, is it's that momentary time when we actually, by an act of the will, motivated by love, reorder our soul as God would have it, as God wanted at the beginning, and as we're trying to reestablish that in the soul. So the very first, the very first purpose of prayer and sacrifice is that matter of adoration. And that takes us to this whole question of worship, of worship of God, because the worship of God is really the means we are using to enter into, to understand, to apply, to take to heart real adoration. How do we, how do we as Catholics adore God? Is it simply by our own personal efforts to have the thoughts of adoration, the thoughts of contrition, the thoughts of thanksgiving, and the thoughts of supplication? Or is there more? Well, there is, of course, because Christ himself gave us the means of adoration. Christ is the means of adoration of the Father. He, in commanding his apostles, was placing into their hands himself, literally, as the means of adoration. And this is where everything starts in the spiritual life. This means of adoration is Christ himself, you see. So adoration, all true adoration of the Father has to go through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we try to enter the sheepfold any other way, thieves and robbers, any, no one can come to the Father except by me, our Lord says, and no one comes to me except the Father draw him. Our Lord said that. So all true adoration of God must go through Jesus Christ. No, it is not true to say we all worship the same God. We certainly don't worship the same God, and we certainly don't worship God in the same way 
they worship false gods with their false worship. But those who follow our Lord Jesus Christ and who adore through him, they worship the true God with the true worship, which only Christ himself is worthy to offer. So that brings us to the question of Corpus Christi, the octave of the feast day. Our Lord gives us the means to offer to God that adoration. And that is by his Eucharistic presence here among us, which we know in theory, but we don't honor as we should. In fact, we might even sometimes give bad example by the casualness with which we regard the Blessed Sacrament. When I say the casualness, I don't mean that we walk around in the church with our hats on. We don't do that. Catholic wouldn't do that. But we can also show a disregard for the Blessed Sacrament by simply ignoring it. You know, we celebrate the Feast of the Sacred Heart tomorrow, and our Lord told St. Margaret Mary, when he showed her his heart, he said, Behold the heart which has so loved mankind, but which is rewarded with so much forgetfulness, negligence, and contempt. Forgetful, forgetfulness, negligence, and contempt. To what extent does that describe our, our treating of our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament? I'm afraid, all too often, as Catholics, we do not show the appreciation that we really should for this splendid presence, this wonderful presence of God here in this way. Now, suppose you were to bring some friends, non-Catholic friends, to Mass. Suppose you, you came to Mass and you had some friends, let's say a Novus Ordo, a Novus Ordo friend and a Protestant friend. Maybe you were going on a, like a, a fishing trip together and you were leaving early in the morning on a Sunday, but you said, no, I can't go because I, I can't leave early in the morning because I have to attend Mass first. That's my first obligation. And your friends say, oh, well, okay, fine. We'll load up the car, we'll load up the boat, we'll get everything ready, and we'll come with you and we'll leave right from Mass and go right, right to the lake for a fishing trip. Okay. Just positing the scenario here. So you attend Mass and your friends are there as observers, okay? Your Novus Ordo friend and your Protestant friend. And uh, I've kind of put together a little, not dialogue, but trialogue, because there are three persons involved, uh, kind of a stream of consciousness or a stream of unconsciousness, you decide, that of a conversation that might occur afterwards. And here it is. This is you speaking here. Aren't you curious that we, what? Oh, no, no, I'm, I beg your pardon. Here, I got the trialogue and I'm already confused here. This is your friend. This is your Protestant friend, okay? Your Protestant friend says, aren't you curious what we thought about your service this morning? And your Nova Soto friend says, he's probably afraid to ask. This could happen. I tried to make it as realistic as possible. And you say, yes, I'm curious. 
And no, I'm not afraid to ask. I just thought you'd bring up any questions or thoughts you had. Why? The Protestants. I don't mean to be insulting, but it seemed to me to be really weird. Cult-like, almost creepy. All those people kneeling, still, facing the same direction, in silence. Some reading from books, others staring off in the distance listening to somebody in robes saying something in a language none of them understands. Other people looked bored while kids tried to play, but annoyed parents made them stop. That is a way different, that is way different from anything I know as worship in my church, where we're singing and praising God and reading from the Bible in a language we can understand. And your Nova Soto friend chimes in, even though I'm Catholic, I have to agree. I know that's the way the Catholic Church used to do things, but now I know why they changed. Just watching a priest wander around with his back to you, going on and on in a foreign or a dead language, you can't even hear. And if you heard it, you still couldn't understand it. Now that is boring. How can that even be worship? Now at least people interact. They all join in praying and singing at the church I go to, handshaking, and even dancing when they feel like it. It's so much more engaging and interesting and even entertaining. It's, it's more like a party. We enjoy it. And you say, I see where you're both coming from, and I agree with you that from your point of view, the traditional Catholic Mass must really be boring and strange. And you know, Basordo friends, so if you agree with us, why do you go there? The Protestant, yeah, we were all ready to get an early start for the lake, and you were the one who insisted you had to go to church first. For what? For that? And you answer, I did not say I agreed with you. I just said that I can understand why, from your point of view, the Latin Mass must be a real waste of time and effort. The Protestant says, so you're saying from our point of view, and the Novasoro and says, yeah, what's that supposed to mean? And you answer, by your point of view, I mean that what you believe, according to your belief, worshiping God comes down to you praying, you singing, you dancing, etc. So if that's missing, it's not worship. And whatever it is, it's meaningless and boring to you. But... Did most of the people in church look bored to you this morning? The Protestant answers, well, not really. I'd say most of them looked like they were concentrating. But that's why I say it was kind of creepy. They were concentrating on nothing, at least nothing I could see. And the Nova Soto friend, yeah, they were concentrating on their books or on the priest. Did you notice that whenever the priest said jump, they asked how high? We don't do all that mumbo-jumbo anymore, especially kneeling. We mostly sit and watch or listen to the readings and the songs unless we're involved in bringing up gifts or giving communion. And you answer, there you are. That's what you think of as worship. So, of course, the Latin Mass is meaningless to you. The Protestant answers, what on earth could you or anybody believe that would make kneeling in silence, ignoring everybody around you, staring off towards some guy standing in the distance in colored robes, at an altar, what could possibly make that interesting? What could possibly make that worship? And your Nova Soto friend chimes in on the attack. I have to agree. 
The liturgy is gathering together the people of God to experience fellowship and a sense of community. It seems to me that your Latin Mass is the very opposite of that. Are you saying that your old Mass is the opposite of my new Mass? And you say, well, actually, yes, it is. My old Mass is the exact opposite of your new Mass. I hadn't thought of it like that before, but if you put it that way, it really is the opposite of your new Mass. The Protestant says, it looks like you're outvoted here. We both have more in common with each other than we have with you in your worship. You're easily the odd man out here. You seem like a reasonable, sensible, normal guy. How can you be so weird when it comes to religion? And you answer, I have a question for both of you. And your Nova Soto friend says, okay, go ahead. Let's hope your question is in English and makes more sense than your prayers. And you ask, what do you think you would see and hear on Calvary during the crucifixion of our Lord? And the Protestant thinks for a second, says, well, that's a strange question, but at least it's in English. I would see soldiers crucifying Jesus and probably, probably hear them cursing and swearing at him and at each other. And your Nova Soto friend says, and some Jewish priests mocking him and defying him to come down from the cross and the thieves on either side of him also berating him. And you answer, do you think you'd see Jesus' mother Mary there? And your Nova Soto friend says, oh yeah, she was there, so I'm sure we'd see her there, but she probably wasn't saying or doing anything, but simply watching Jesus on the cross. And you ask, do you think John the Apostle was there? And your Protestant friend says, oh yeah, Scripture says that John was there too with Mary, so we'd see him there, but he probably wasn't doing what the rest were doing. He was probably just really quiet with Mary and watching Jesus rather than paying attention to anything else going on. And you ask, well, were, are there other people there who were followers of Jesus? And the Protestant, who knows his Bible better, says, yes, Mary Magdalene was there, and there was a group of, of a few women who were devout. And you ask, well, what do you think they were doing and saying? And your Nova Soto friend says, well, probably not much. They were probably just really quiet and watching very carefully the Jesus on the cross. In fact, that's probably what they were focusing on was Jesus on the cross and ignoring or trying to ignore everything else. And so you answer, so Christ's enemies were making all the noise and those who loved him were very quiet while all their attention was directed toward Jesus on the cross. The Protestant says, well, yes, I'd, I'd agree with that. And the Nova Soto friend says, yeah, that sounds right. And you say, but what was Jesus doing on Calvary? What do you see and hear from him? And your Nova Soto friend says, well, he was suffering and dying. And Jesus couldn't do or say much. The Protestant says, he did talk, but only seven times. So there wasn't much to hear but it's what he was doing that was most important. 
he was dying as the sacrifice of atonement for our sins, as any Protestant would recognize. And you say, well, you as a Protestant, you believe that. And you, your Protestant friend says, well, absolutely I believe that. Of course I believe it. You can't be a Christian if you don't believe that. And the Novus Ordo friend chimes in, as Christians, we all agree on that, even you. And you answer, yes, I do believe that. Do you think that Christ's executioners knew what he was doing on the cross? And your Novus Ordo friend says, well, they knew he was dying, but they obviously did not have any idea that he was dying as a sacrifice for our sins. And your Protestant friend says, all they knew was that he was condemned for claiming to be a king, not that he was dying as the Messiah. And the Novus Ordo friend chimes in again. Actually, nobody there knew that Jesus was dying in sacrifice to atone for sins. And you ask, well, do you think Mary knew? And the Protestant even says, well, I guess she had to know, since the angel told her that Jesus would deliver his people from their sins, when she conceived him, she must have known then what he was doing on Calvary. But she was the only one who knew. Even John did not know. We see that after the resurrection, Jesus had to explain to the apostles what happened on Calvary. And so you, you respond, well, isn't it interesting? Everyone on Calvary spoke Hebrew, Greek, or Latin, or all three. But only Mary knew what was actually happening. So understanding the language does not necessarily mean that someone knows the meaning, and knowing the meaning does not necessarily require an understanding of the language. Mary knew but even all the rest who spoke those languages did not understand what was happening before their very eyes. And so your Novus Ordo friend says, well, okay, now I see where you're going with this. You're trying to tell us that people at your Mass don't have to understand Latin to know what's happening at the Mass. But that does not follow logically, since Calvary was an event and your Mass is just an empty ceremony unless the people there are actively participating, like Vatican II said they should. And you say, but as a traditional Catholic, I believe that Jesus gave us a way to come to Calvary and be present for his sacrifice. The Protestant immediately reacts, what? That's ridiculous. How could he do that? And your nervous sort of friend says, I seem to recall something like that. The Catholic Church used to teach something like that. But nobody really believed it, so they changed it when they got rid of the old Mass and brought in the new Mass. And you answer, well, true Catholics all believe it, and still do believe it. And that's what the Mass is, the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary. No one can change that. No one. And your Novus Ordo friend says, are you saying I'm not really a Catholic? Your Protestant friend says, let me get this straight. Do you think, so you think that every time your priests say Mass, Jesus dies over and over again on the cross? And you answer, no, that's not what I believe, and it's not what I say. What I'm saying is that Jesus continues to offer to God the Father the one sacrificial death he suffered for us on the cross, and that his death 
is represented by the presence of his real body and his real blood on the altar at every Mass. The Protestant objects, that's not in the Bible. The Catholic Church just made that up. And you, who know these things, you answer, well, didn't Jesus say at the Last Supper, this is my body which will be offered for you, and this is the chalice of my blood which will be poured out for you. Do this in commemoration of me. Your Novus Ordo friend objects, yeah, but that was not the sacrifice of Calvary. That hadn't happened yet. So how do you make that into the sacrifice and turn that into the Mass? Well, you answer, St. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that he taught, that he himself taught only what he himself had received, what he himself had received from the apostles, and that is what they received from Christ. That at the Last Supper, Jesus gave to his apostles his body and blood and told them to do the same thing in commemoration of him. And that whenever they did that, they, as St. Paul says, showed forth his, Jesus' sacrificial death until he came again. And that's what the Mass is. It is showing forth the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is why the Mass is the way it is. To make us mindful of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so at Mass, we are like the Magi. We are like the shepherds at the manger. We are like the Blessed Mother Mary and St. John and Mary Magdalene at the cross. We are like St. Peter and St. John at the empty tomb. Our attention and our affection is all directed to our Lord, to what he has done and what he is doing there. We are like St. Thomas saying, My Lord and my God. Like Mary saying, Be it done unto me according to thy word. And like the blind man saying, Jesus, Lord, have mercy on me. You might not now nor ever believe what Catholics believe about the Mass. But once you know what Catholics believe about the Mass and what happens there, then you can understand why the Mass is the way it is. Why you walk into a Catholic church where the traditional Mass is being offered and you find people kneeling in silence, all facing the same way, not paying attention to each other, not involved with each other, but they're all focused on something else happening in the front of that church at that altar. Then you can understand why the kneeling, the silence, the attention, the devotion, the focus, the concentration. You might not ever believe that the Mass is the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary, but knowing that that's what Catholics believe it is, how could you expect the Mass to be any other way than it is in the traditional Catholic Church at the traditional Catholic Mass? Because it is exactly what you would expect those who loved our Lord on Calvary to be doing at the Mass. And so when you transfer yourself to Calvary and you see Our Lady, St. John, St. Mary Magdalene, the devout women, in other words, all of those who loved our Lord were as though they were attending Mass today. They were silent. They were completely focused utterly on our Lord and what he was doing there. He, they on the cross, we on the altar. Because we realize that what our Lord is doing on the altar is exactly what he did on the cross. But for what we did to him, he's not bleeding and dying on the, on the altar as he did on the cross.
But the thing, same thing that led him to the cross leads him still to the altar. It is the same love. It is the same purpose to plead for mercy for us and to ask us to come and receive mercy from God. This is the meaning of the Mass, you see. So looking at it that way, you'd have to say, well, the pattern set for the Mass was set not only at the Last Supper, but the pattern set for the Mass was set at Calvary. It was all those who did not love our Lord, those who hated him, those who despised him, those who detested him, those who disregarded him. They were the ones making all the noise, paying attention to each other, carrying on. If there was any festive atmosphere, it was because they were rejoicing that he was dying. These were what the enemies of our Lord were doing on Calvary. Even, even, our, even our, our solemn masses, you know. I mean, you look at the essence of the mass and you say, well, it's the same sacrifice that is offered underground in a catacomb chamber and that offered in a great basilica. But you look at the difference between the low mass and the splendid pontifical high masses with orchestras. But you see, even there, people put down the instruments and stop, and everything falls silent for the consecration. And there, even there, in our rather uh, joyous high masses that we celebrate, gives way for that moment again to Calvary. Calvary and what the devout who loved our Lord were doing on Calvary for that moment of consecration when we have the body and blood of our Lord come to us as our sacrifice. So could this dialogue or trialogue happen? I think so. I'd like to think you might agree that, well, yeah, this doesn't sound so far-fetched, that this seems to represent what a Protestant might say. It seems to represent what a Novus Ordo might say. And uh, it might even represent what I would say if I had the opportunity. The question is, why don't we make the opportunity to have this conversation? because we are neglectful, because we are forgetful, neglectful, maybe even a little contemptuous of our Lord's presence there. How sad that is, really. So we have to understand the essence of the Mass is that our Lord makes himself present here in this wonderful way for us, He's not making himself present here for himself. He didn't have to do that. But he's making himself present here for us, as you might say, going the extra step. The fathers would say this. St. Thomas Aquinas would say this. And he did say this. In fact, in his hymn to the Blessed Sacrament, that on the cross, our Lord's divinity was well hidden. No miracle that our Lord worked on the cross saved him from any suffering. There was no divine power evident there in the crucifixion of our Lord on the cross. And yet it is where our Lord accomplished the most spectacular feat of strength. He was doing something that only God had the power to do. 
and that he could not give to anyone else to do. And that is make the reparation for the sins of mankind. He and he alone could do that. He alone and he alone had the power to do that. And it was accomplished in a feat of weakness, as it were, of absolute appearance of defeat. There's when God opened the gates of heaven. And so we see that our Lord comes to us for our sakes because he wanted us to be able to take our places at the foot of the cross and now at the foot of the altar at the on Calvary when he offered that sacrifice for us. He wanted us to be present at the sacrifice. And as I mentioned before, our Lord could have scooped us all up and carried us back in time and put us down thousands of miles away on Mount Calvary when our Lord died on the cross. He could have done that. He has God. He has the power to do that. But he chose not to do that. Rather, what he does is he takes Calvary and he places it wherever there's an altar. He brings the sacrifice of Calvary to us rather than take us there. He take, brings it to us here. He puts it right in front of us. Day after day, mass after mass, this is what he does. By this amazing, amazing miracle of the consecration that we, we know as transubstantiation. We need to appreciate that. It's a tremendous gift. So tremendous, it is almost unthinkable. And like so many other things that are unthinkable, to us, it can seem somewhat negligible. But it's not. It better not be. We need to appreciate why our Lord comes, what he does on that altar, and why he wants you there. You realize what you're doing, what you're doing uh, at the altar, what you're doing during Mass is you are actually praying with Jesus Christ. You're joining your prayer to his in real time, in real time. He is there praying for you. He really is. He's there praying for you in real time. And you're there and you are literally offering your prayers with him. This is not a Protestant church where there is emptiness, where there should be the divine presence. There is not that presence of Christ on Calvary which makes the sacrifice present. And so they may hope that their prayers go to God through Christ. And if they're offered with any real faith, or real hope, or real charity, if those virtues are present in the soul, they have reason to hope that their prayers will go to Christ. But there is also reason that, that God will give them the grace then to find their way to the true faith and to Calvary, the Mass. But you have that. You have that. And you must appreciate it for what it is. When you are at Mass, and our Lord is actually present there on the altar in his body and blood, he is offering that sacrificial death of his to you. 
that one completed sacrificial death, he is offering that you partake of this, that you eat of this, that you receive of this as a sacrifice, that you become united with his sacrifice. And you demonstrate that union with his sacrifice by receiving him at Holy Communion. But he is offering that sacrifice, that, that same unique death of his on the cross, he, he offers it continually to the Father, continually to the Father, pleading throughout time for the souls of those who love him. So appreciate that. Thank God for that. Try to understand it as much as you possibly can understand, at least to understand the love that is behind it. Now, we're going to be celebrating the Feast of the Sacred Heart of our Lord tomorrow. And uh, so uh, we realize that we're entering more deeply into the mystery of, of the Holy Eucharist because we commemorate the fact of our Lord's presence here in his body and his blood, but with this next feast day and the octave that follows from it, we actually enter into the body of Christ and we see there within that body of Christ, even on the altar here, we see his heart. His heart is really there. The sacred heart of Jesus is actually alive in the tabernacle. And by the feast of the sacred heart, we've, we've actually, in a sense, not only gone to Calvary, but it's as though we enter in with the, the point of that spear that opened up the heart of our Lord. And we have access to his own sacred heart now. So this is taking, in a sense, that next step. Where our Lord has taken that step of concealing not only his humanity from us, but even as our Lord has taken the step, the, the step of concealing his divinity from us on the cross, so in a sense, this goes farther. In a sense, this presence goes even farther than that. Because by this presence, he conceals not only his divinity, he conceals his humanity from us. In this case, great faith. Faith in his love and in his power to do what he promised. So our Lord conceals his divinity upon the cross, in the Blessed Sacrament, he conceals his humanity. He's taken that extra step for us. And in a sense, with tomorrow's feast day, we take another step too. We take one step closer, as it were, entering into the body of Christ in our thoughts, our prayers, our devotion, by going to his very heart, his open heart. And uh, we find there the refuge, the salvation. We find there all our hope, right there in that sacred heart. So I ask you to uh, ponder these things for a few minutes. And uh, we have the rosary here in about 25 minutes. So I'll meet you there and we'll pray the rosary together. It'll be the sorrowful mysteries.